Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined again by Matthew Lee Anderson and Alistair Roberts uh, for the full, most of the cast and crew. Um, today, <laughs> you almost just wrote Andrew. I out. Almost, that was I close. Hey, Andrew. <laughs> um, yeah. So today, uh, we are going to wrap up our multi-part conversation through C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, if you've been following along with us. Uh, we've gone through the, the various, uh, you know, the intro and then the, the various loves themselves. So uh, today, we're taking up the last chapter uh, of charity. Charity, the, the, the crowning love, the, the divine love, the, the unique and uh, supernatural love that um, Lewis... Uh, takes up. So we're just going to start in on that. And um, we didn't establish this before the show. Matt and Alistair, do you guys have any any initial orienting uh, questions? Something that, that provoked you or you wanted to lean in on? Well, I needed a trigger warning um, in the section on vulnerability. Um I knew I knew that was there. I knew it was coming. I prepared myself for it. And still, when I saw to love it all is to be vulnerable, I I couldn't deal with it, guys. I have to confess. <laughs> I I I <laughs> It was just hard, you know, hearing hearing CS Lewis say something that has become so denuded, so um vapid a line of reasoning. Ah, but did he say, um, did he say it is to be authentic? That. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, no. Thankfully, no. Um, I mean, this is, it's, it's one of the most memed uh, quotes mm-hmm. from Lewis, I think, right? To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. Uh, and it goes on. And it's one of one of the best moments of prose, I think, in in the book, which is partly why it troubles me so much, um, because I think I can only give it a half cheer. I, I, I think I have genuine reservations about that formulation and what Lewis does there. <laughs> um, and I mean, it seems to be like it seems to be one of the most modern moments in Lewis's thought. Um, like there's one way of reading this where he is actually doing a kind of, uh, is it Moltmannian sort of rejecting impassibility, um, suggesting that the divine, uh, is the sort of thing that is, uh, vulnerable to loss, which, which strikes me as, um, a long ways from classical theism, right? Uh, it's a long ways from a, a, a potentially a long ways from a doctrine of impassibility where um, the one thing that God is is not vulnerable to loss or degradation. And so what happens on the cross has, has to be explained slightly differently. Um, and so I, I like this, is, which is why I say I, I, I can only give it a half cheer. Um, my only way of rescuing this internally is to say something like he's, he's, here in this 
at this point talking about the kind of love that the lower is and the um, the higher uh, sort of reconfigures this. And I think that's that's reasonable. So I, one one thing that struck I, me. Sorry, I'll stop there. I have other. Yeah, thoughts. no. I, well, I want to ask and clarify because I, you know, that that part also. I resonate with the modern versus ancient thought because I mean he's specifically he's specifically critiquing Augustine, right? He's critiquing Augustine's yes. um, line of argument that, um, you know, it's it's kind of a classical line of argument that in, in many ways that you know if you love anything else. Uh, more than God or in the place of God or as God, et cetera, um, your happiness is subject to, to loss because, you know, it can be taken, fire, sword, uh, hatred, et cetera. Anything, anything other than God is, is, is an insecure basis for happiness. Um, and he, he makes that argument a couple places, I think, to Trinity and, uh, you know, on the Trinity and, and in confessions. But, um, and so it's kind of like a way of talking about idolatry. Um, Lewis kind of respectfully, you know, demurs and, and says, no, I mean, you, you, you can't because that's, that's, that's like a road for, for, you know, in a sense, you know, a frigid heart to, to not love things. Um, right. And I would say I only caught it as that logic, I think sucks at the divine level. Um, but, but I think at the, at the human level, at the at the purely human level, which is what I I thought he was speaking of, um, it gave me pause, and I I don't know why because that that logic has has resonated with me for a long time. Um, the the Augustinian the Augustinian argument. I remember yeah. first encountering it in college, and and that was that was that was that was a it was one of the things that made me Augustinian. Um, but I, I don't know that, uh, I don't know. I didn't see him applying it to, to the divine nature. So I'm well, just trying to find it. No, me neither. I mean, in the paragraph before he says, even if it were granted that insurances against heart, insurances against heartbreak were our highest wisdom. Does God himself offer them? Apparently not. Right. right. And you can say, you can look at that and say, um, you know, God doesn't offer us assurances against loss because the experience of feeling loss is a peculiarly human thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, it's not difficult, I think, to, I mean, the, the, the strength of the claim is to love at all is to be vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that, that is a general claim about the kind of thing that love is. Now, in, in Lewis's defense, uh, the August, what he takes away from the Augustinian here, he gives back at the end of the chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the chapter, he says, he quotes Augustine again, thou hast made us for thyself and our heart, has no rest till it comes to rest in thee. Um, and he's, and he's talking there about, uh, being restored to our loved ones at the end of all things and how we shouldn't just sort of aim for that and instrumentalize God in that, that way. Um, and he says, you know, but all that sort of 
happiness and peace, um, that, uh, that sort of love that we'll have then is far away in the land of the Trinity, uh, not here in exile in the weeping Valley down here. It is all loss and renunciation. So that's, that's, that, that placates my sort of worries about the vulnerability, but it's hard not to. And in part, it's just because that quote has become so disconnected from the broader contours of Lewis's thought. It's hard not to hear it be used yeah. uh, in ways that I think are a, a long ways from how Lewis thought well, it, about it's, it. It gets co-opted and turned into like a general viewpoint and metaphysic of love and relationality as co-suffering and, and, and empathy and all this kind of thing. And, uh, and then in that key, it turns into, it turns into a lot of modern theology and, um, modern spirituality that kind of emphasizes that, that, you know, the glory of God's being is his co-suffering with us. And, um, and that I, I, I would definitely, I definitely react to as well, because that, that vacates that, that empties the incarnation of its unique significance of, of, you know, when God chose to love us in a sense, you know, actively in, in, in the incarnation at that point, yes, that, that meant, you know, assuming a human nature and then having your heart, his, his human heart wrung out and, and all suffering and all loss under the conditions of sin. But, um, but that's only amazing if God in himself is, full of light and, and, and glory and joy. Um, so to assume that to himself is, is miraculous, but to just always be that and then relieve himself of that burden in the, in the, you know, in the atonement, then it just, it empties it. So I, I, I get that concern and I, and I, it reading it, it is unfortunate that the passage is almost robbed of its power because that kind of claim is so, common and poorly made oftentimes. Um, so that struck me. I think, yeah, the, the, what, what struck me in that passage most was that he was using, he was deploying it. I didn't realize he was deploying it against the Augustinian logic of, of that. And I, I, I'm curious, I want to turn to that, what you guys think, not about that quote, but uh, about the Augustinian, his challenge to it that um, how we ought to think about um, love, uh, loving others in respect to God. And, and is it, is it proper to think of it more like, okay, the point isn't to love other things less, but to love God more, or is there, you know, resting your happiness in, in something, in something else, like, you know, that, that the idolatry dynamic there, um, is it competitive? Is it, is it, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious what you guys thought, uh, on that road, on that road. Maybe Alistair, do you have a thought? I thought his point about, um, not trying to avoid suffering in love, but accepting it and offering it to God is, is a helpful one. Um, I mean, within his categories of need, love, for instance, and gift love, it really depends how we construe that love with our neighbour. Um, it doesn't have to be a rival to God. 
in our sense of our need for companionship, for um, the love of others and of our love for them, we can have some sense of our need for God in that. And I think in that sense, the sense of loss that comes with the loss of such a love as such a person passes on can be a reminder of our own dependence upon God who gives us the gift. Um, and in that sense, I think it can also remind us of the more general principle, for instance, of the church as a place where the gifts of God are born by the or the gift of God in its singular form is born in the numerous um, distributed gifts of many um, ministers. And I think that sort of thing can give us the confidence to um, love other people, to be open to suffering on account of that love as it um, great loves fail um, as people pass on, but at the same time not to place those loves above God, but to see God in those and to hold those loves as an aspect of our dependency upon him. Matt? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the... God creates and need love for himself uh, and uh, a supernatural need love of himself and a supernatural need love of one another, Lewis says. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, I mean, there's one strand of thought out there that construes agape, which correct me if I'm wrong. Does he actually mention the term agape? I don't think he does this chapter. In the, I don't think he in does. The, it, he, I don't, I don't see him do it in the print version. I have the audio lectures and, um, and he ends up talking about agape and uh, uh, frequently. And so, but in this, in this huh. lecture, it doesn't seem to, or maybe I'm just remembering him, him huh. referencing agape in, um, in earlier lectures where he distinguishes the four loves, but I didn't actually listen to this um, before I, I, I read the print version. So maybe he doesn't in this, yeah. maybe he doesn't in the, in the lectures as well, but I, I, I seem to remember him, him doing so. Huh. I mean, which is, which is kind of curious to me uh, as to why he would go this long without, without mentioning it. And I mean, there's one strand of thought, what made me think of this out there where um, agape is the sort of thing which is completely sort of self-sacrificial. It's completely, um, there's no self-referential dimension to it at all. And, you know, Lewis seems to be taking a pretty big swing at that line of reasoning and in his formulation of, you know, God engendering these needs for himself and these needs for others that are supernatural. So, so it's, you know, our need for one another has divine sanction. There, there, there is an inextricable self-referential component to charity in the sense that, um, it's not just entirely disinterested love. It's not just for your sake alone that I'm doing this, 
Lewis seems to be saying that it's it's for both of our sakes that um, that we have this sort of relationship and that my love for another person is not uh, is for my sake and for theirs concurrently. Um, the more or less language, Derek, that you picked up on, um, he 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 suggests that that's just not helpful language, and I and I think that's right. I've never been able to. It's it's very hard for me to quantify or to weigh um, loves in those sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, and I and I actually have wondered whether or not that's that's a useful taxonomy, if if only because it does seem to presuppose a sort of bifurcation between them that, from the standpoint of charity, actually goes away. Mm-hmm. So loving all things in loving God, loving God in as much as we're loving all things, um, the, the proper ordering of those seems to be a, a kind of heuristic that in optimal circumstances shouldn't just arise, sort of disappears. Right. And I wonder if the, 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 the attentiveness or the language of weighing actually creates more divisions between them than than would need to happen otherwise. Yeah, I mean, so so I don't no, know. so he he the language the, the section that on that that I thought was most um, clarifying was when he says the, the real question is when the alternative comes which you know which do you serve or choose or put first to which claim does your will in the last resort yield? Um, and so he he putting it in the language of fealty and loyalty and allegiance and concrete choice um you know i can't quantify the way i love you know the feeling of love i have for my wife or the feeling of love i have for god i mean you know who knows the feelings shift from day to day based on you know your diet but like when it comes to a concrete choice of whose will and whose desires and whose um values like who am i putting first in in those concrete actions that's 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 a more that's a more concrete reality of love in that sense and that's it's, it's i think it's even more active in a biblical sense of love as 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 activity um and not simply um emotion although the emotive and the effective is the emote you know the effective levels there um one one other section, if I if I'm okay to turn things, um, he talks about, you know, so so he goes into the whole without talking about it, the whole nature grace paradigm of what God's supernatural love, what, what grace does in our lives, and he he talks about how it restores our proper need loves, right? It it makes us recognize that we. You know, it makes us recognize our natural needs for God, and that's what the supernatural does: is it, it, it naturalizes us again, it heals us. But then he talks about it as if it also um, gives us more than natural loves. Uh, on top of it, to love what is, so he talks about his own gift love. You know, to love what is unlovable, and that to me, to me, is the most. Um, you know, cliche, not cliche, but, but more when, when people popularly talk about the distinction of agape, 
this this gift love level of like loving what's unlovable, he talks about giving that to us, you know, for each other in the church and all that kind of thing. The the thing that threw me was when he starts to suggest, he says, finally, by a high paradox, God enables men to have a gift love towards himself. And there is, of course, a sense in which no one can give to God anything which is not already his. And if it is already his, what have you given? But since it is only too obvious that we can withhold ourselves, our wills, our hearts from God, we can, in that sense, also give them. But he kind of goes on and he, he, he the idea of us giving gift love to God, um, that also struck me as extremely paradoxical. And he calls it paradoxical. My question is whether or not it's nonsensical. Um, is there any love One that of the we com- give, give to God that is, <laughs> yeah, that, that disinterestedness, like that there's, there's, yeah, anyways, there isn't a need love. One of the contexts within which he explores that is um, the idea of giving to the poor and mm-hmm. using the parable of the um, sheep and the goats, which is an interesting one in that context, mm-hmm. because yeah, you do that. have passages such as, or the verse in Proverbs, the one who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. There is that sense there of um, of giving to God. And in some sense... Hmm. proper qualifications of putting God as it were in our debt. Um, So I think he's dealing with biblical themes there, but they are complicated ones and need to be handled with care, but they are there. Right. Matt. Do you have a, yeah. um, No, I'm still like, I, I, yeah. The idea that we can sort of, it, it, it is a paradox. I mean, there is, there's a, um, a sense in which the giving of creation back to God, um, does, does seem to sort of magnify, um, magnify a glory that couldn't be magnified. I mean, I, I don't know how this goes, but it does, it doesn't, strike me as um yeah it doesn't it doesn't strike me as um it 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 strikes me as sort of intuitively reasonable that having been given to by god um that the in in the return of that gift to him that there would be something that would happen that would be more than uh the original gift Right, like that, that, that in that transaction, that giving and uh, receiving and then giving again, um, that the whole of that transaction is greater than the sum of the parts or the value is compounding like interest. I mean, the economic thing is really interesting because if you give to the poor, um, we view that as a kind of zero sum game that what has happened is um, I have had a certain amount of money and I've given it to the poor and they have now have that same amount of money. Um, but within, within the logic of giving, there's something that goes on. That's actually more than that. Um, uh, such that if that money were to spread among the poor, it would, it would actually increase and compound. And I think that's just, that's just, it's a sort of paradox and it's a way of thinking about, 
um, the economy of the kingdom that is very traditional. It's very classical, um, but it's hard to hard to sort of get at and say precisely what's going on there um, uh, because the experience is so foreign to us, I think. That's not terribly helpful. Sorry, Derek. No, it's okay. I, I just, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I think is the most, and, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm flipping through here and I'm just trying to, trying to get my eyes on whether or not he takes it up again. Cause he kind of throws it in there, suggests it deals with the charity thing that Alistair talks about and then leaves. I, I, he seems to leave it alone and goes back to talking about the way God transforms our need loves into gift loves for gift loves for others. Um, but just the notion of, of, of a supernatural charity towards God, um, the closest I've come to it, uh, hearing somebody else talk about it is, is, um, I don't know, Keller, Tim Keller was talking about something Jonathan Edwards said once, um, about the way we love holiness, that, um, that God's holiness, thinking of holiness only as God's kind of purity as it, as it, you know, turns into God's judgment and threateningness. Um, loving God's holiness in a sense, does, you no good. If you, if you can appreciate it, you can love it. It's not because it's, it's obviously good for you, um, in a, in a, in a, in a utilitarian way, it's, it's a threat to you. But if you can, if, but if you love it and if you're, if you're glorying in it, that's just, that's just purely because you're appreciating the beauty of what God is. But even that, even if you go there and you accept all the premises, it's still adoration of something that is intrinsically beautiful and pure and provoking in you. Um, uh, just, uh, you know, it's drawing you to itself because of its goodness. And so, there's no, I just feel like it's, 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 it's weird to say that you can give the love of, you know, a disinterested non-adoration, even love towards what is infinitely adorable and couldn't possibly be anything other than that unless you yourself are distorted in the way you're looking at it. So that was the way he, the way he talks about it is interesting because he's talking about it as a sort of indirect giving to the Lord, right? Um, which I think is significant. What mm -hmm. the way we give to God is by participating in His own giving process. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's about the only way you could possibly possibly do it. But then at that at that point, are you, are you really just engaging in some? I don't know, sloppy sloppy language or. Um, like I'm accidentally giving God. I didn't know I was giving to God, but I am indirectly. I don't know that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's 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 a biblical way oh, of thinking. Okay. So I, I I can't I can't critique it too hard, but um, too, not too hard. But it's it's just it's it was one of those paradoxes that it's like oh that's that's brilliant. Oh, I don't even know if it works though. That's kind of how that one felt when I was reading it. Um, this chapter I think is, is one of the weirder ones. Um, there's some, in, in that sense, I, I, I felt when I was reading it, it, um, it was oddly challenging. Uh, did, did you fellows have, Alistair, did you have something you wanted to take up? That was one of my main questioning and curiosity points. 
I thought his discussion of of grace and need was very interesting. Um, and this instinctive urge that we have to be transform um, even our dependency into something lovable. Um, this resistance, deep resistance that we have to being loved by pure love itself, not because we are lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 so he has the example of... Quite a powerful uh, passage, actually. Yeah, he has that example of, uh, of a man, you know, imagine yourself basically like struck down by some kind of wasting disease where you're, you're basically um, incapacitated and you can't, you can't provide for your family. You can't, you know, even mental and, and spiritually, just a, just a strong degenerative disease. And, and then your wife has buckets of love, of pure unselfish love that she pours out on you and and um and serves you and yeah just the idea that that would that would at some point um yeah even even the way he described it i i recoiled i recoiled at having to receive that at the thought of of my wife having to just just deal with me um not in my strength uh not in even my partial strength but just where i'm given i'm basically i'm given nothing there is there is a zero on my side of the equation. Um, d- that would be that would be so hard. Um, it's it's almost terrifying um, to think about. I mean, if there's one thing we hate, it's being a burden. <sighs> yeah, I mean, not but for yet, too long at least. One another's burdens. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 and what element of pride is involved there? Um, <laughs> and then the section where he talks about the way, and, and, and this, this was funny. I've noticed this before. Um, the way sometimes if you, you see an argument going on and somebody says, well, you know, I forgive you as a Christian <laughs> as a way of not really ending the argument, but really just <laughs> you know, angering the other Passive person even more. Continuing it. Yeah. Like if I, man, it, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to be gracious to you. Oh, really? <laughs> like, but that, those are fighting words. Um, saying I forgive you. Uh, and that's just another funny manifestation of that. Um, which is really why the, you know, another angle of the offense of the gospel. Um, and it's offensive pronouncement of forgiveness upon people who don't think they need it. Um, so that, that, that discussion was, yeah, that was something. Um, the other thing I found quite stimulating was thinking about the relationship between natural love and charity and the sort of incarnational analogy that he employs on occasions um, for instance, love has prepared for himself a body. The idea that yeah. charity itself um, is related to our natural loves and discussing that, for instance, in the context of heaven um, and re- reunion with earthly friends, relatives, the people that we have loved and cared about. How do we understand that vision of the new heavens and the new earth um, and a more divinely focused one? Um, 
where it's very much about the love of God, etc. Um, it's a very interesting discussion, the way that he he explores through that lens the relationship on earth more generally between mm. those two forms of love. Matt? Hmm. No, I think that's right. I mean, that, that, that line that you quoted, Alistair, um, love has prepared for himself a body, uh, really struck me as well. Um, and the, the full sentence, the, the preceding part is, thus in our very instincts, appetites, and recreations, love has prepared himself a body. There is a, I mean, what, what strikes me about it is a, is a um, love seems to have gone out before itself and prepared the way for its own arrival um i mean that's that's one way of thinking about the natural loves that they're sort of uh divine love working um in a proto fashion in a in a in a um prevenient can i say that <laughs> Tarek is not allowable. No, you're good. <laughs> not allowable to you. <laughs> might say pure name. Um, <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, uh, but the, but prevenient fashion strikes me as as the right sort of thing. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, right, right, right. Sort of term um, for the way in which you know th- this divine love is um, sculpting. A context in which it will make sense for charity to arise. Um, uh, yeah, it's I I I really think there's there's a lot there um, about the even even I mean right now I'm thinking spending all my time thinking about family relations and thinking about the way in which um, the the love of mother and father um, precedes the existence of the child and in one sense prepares a home for the child to enter uh, and sets a context for the child to emerge into. Um, And so when I read that, I I couldn't help but think about the way in which um, love does prepare a body. Love love sort of precedes and, and shapes the body of the child in a way that um, that I think is quite analogous to what he's talking about here. Um, yeah, that doesn't really push things further. Well, I apologize, but I, I'm really struck by that. that. I mean, I, so I, I just, um, I come back to the nature and grace thing again. I was, I was writing a little bit earlier on um, Herman Bobbing's conception of the nature grace relationship. And again, just the, the grace restoring nature healing and then not just healing uh what had been broken in the fall but um elevating it uh to what nature had been intended to achieve to to where it had been intended to reach so adam you know in, in christ christ doesn't just take adam back to the garden you know christ takes adam to not that you know, not the beginning of his career, but the end of it, where where Adam, what Adam was supposed to have attained, um, he accomplishes in his place, and 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 for us, and so there's that um, Adam was created good, but not good, but not done, not complete, um, and so this this I think that you know he, he was he was not fully matured. 
and so there's a sense in which that 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 uh, the natural loves, um, you know, they're 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 wounded in the fall. They're distorted in all the ways he talks about through the book. But then supernatural grace comes in in Christ, heals them, and then takes them to their completion, their intended eschatological resting place um, with the the influx of grace, in a sense, uh, of Christ. And so it, you kind of see this movement where, where the natural loves in their own way had to, had to be coordinate with, they had to be fitting, uh, you know, fitting with what is coming, like their, their crowning grace, their crowning love. Um, and so it makes sense that they're, they find their fullness in that, in that movement. And so, you know, it, and you almost just compare it. This is another, another angle on the image of God in a sense. There, there, there had to be some sort of correspondence that needed completion. Um, I don't know if that, that made sense, but that that's that's where my mind was going when I was when I was um, chewing chewing on some of this as I was reading it. It might also be interesting to reflect upon the way in which, when we read the story of the Gospels, we see the love of God in His Son manifested and channeled through very natural human loves, the love of a mother for her child, um, the love of a father for her for his child the companionship of friends and Jesus mm. disciples the love of close friendships um with the beloved disciple and things like that or with someone like Lazarus and then we can see other relationships that are very human ones but become as the story develops the containers for something much greater and they're drawn up into this deeper reality without ever losing their fundamental original character. But there is there is a greater reality that they are made to participate in. And so it might be interesting to just explore the story from that perspective and see how Christ made a passage through traversing human loves and drawing those into himself. I, I think you kind of did. Um, that, that <laughs> might be interesting to explore here. Um, no, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, that's my, my pastor this last week just preached a sermon on, um, on, uh, Matthew one and, and spent a good chunk of it reflecting on the figure of Joseph and, um, just the, 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 the goodness of Joseph, the righteousness of Joseph, um, and even thinking about the way that Joseph acts, the way Yahweh does with his with his unfaithful bride, they, you know, it's his, he wanted to, um, in a sense, deal mercifully with Mary when he thought Mary had betrayed her, um, and then and then he he trustingly, uh, in you know, in faithfulness and goodness to God, in in love of God, um, takes this takes this woman and 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 what was not his child and makes it makes him his child um there's there's an ascent there's a sense in which you know joseph adopts jesus uh and and shares this kind of like adoptive love for 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 
for the son of God. Um, and, and that is, that's a particular kind of love that, uh, a human love that, that is a mirror and a, and a precursor to the divine love of God coming and adopting the, you know, adopting us, uh, in Christ. And that's one of those, it's an, it's an interesting angle I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of even, even until now. Um, little analogies all over the gospel story. At the very end of the book, in the final couple of pages, he talks about the appreciative love for God and in a very reticent manner, um, talking about uh, something he does not, he cannot fully say whether he has experienced himself and he does not want to almost trespass upon that area. Um, lest he speak beyond his knowledge. Um, then he makes a very interesting comment about people talk about practicing the presence of God. And then he talks about the possibility of practicing the absence of God as something comparable to that experience when in a dream we come to the awareness that we are dreaming mm. and that we are not awake and from that point we can push for wait, wakefulness but there's that awareness of absence um in our relationship with god and i found that a very interesting thing there's um thomas hallick has a book patience with god that explores this theme the idea of love creating a space of absence where the beloved one is yearned for um and you feel keenly their absence and often i don't think we practice that sense of absence enough. Um, I've found that a very striking thought when I first encountered it in that book. Um, and then seeing Lewis bring it up again, I thought it's worth reflecting upon. Hmm. Matt, did you have something? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm sitting here contemplatively meditating <laughs> on um, what Alistair has said, because that, that struck me as well. Um, I think that uh, this is a hard book for me. This is a hard chapter for me to talk about. I think it's a hard chapter for me to discuss um, because the kind of reticence that Lewis demonstrates at the very end, talking about appreciative love mm. I, I feel it about mm -hmm. uh, talking about charity more broadly. Like it, this is the sort of the, the center and the highest and um, the loftiest of these things. And I, I'm pretty attentive to my own inability to go where Lewis goes on this. Um, so it, I, I, like I've just been sitting here flipping through it, reading various parts and thinking, yes, now I'm just going to meditate on that for a while, mm. which does not make for a very good podcast. Um, uh, turns out, but, um, but the, I, I am struck by the, the degree of difficulty that, um, it is to, to talk appropriately about charity without, um, distorting one's own relationship to it um, without being too presumptuous 
that one has understood this thing. Mm. Um, and, uh, or being, you know, having too much of a false humility and, and sort of pretending that one can't say anything at all. Um, but it is, it is a, a very, I think, difficult thing. And I, and I love Lewis's reluctance to, to speak about the appreciative dimension. What's, what strikes me about it, Alistair, is that, um, it seems so the converse of our contemporary discourse where we have so much discussion about the centrality of this appreciative love, the experience of worship, the, um, you know, what it's like to be in the presence of God and so on and so forth. Like we're saturated in, in that kind of atmosphere. And, um, it's it's a it's very jarring to hear Lewis say there there's a form of love that's the highest that I'm not even actually able to talk about. Um, that that sense of modesty is is so refreshing and chastening. Yeah, to be to be perfectly honest, it's very very chastening. Yeah, I uh, I think ten years ago that would have been weirder to me. Um, I was much more exuberant in my worship and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, who knows, maybe my, my heart has grown calloused or something like that. Um, contracted as, as Fred talks about, uh, Sanders talks about on review, but, um, that more and more, I'm, I'm way, I'm way more comfortable talking about the other three chapters, uh, because I'm, I'm way more comfortable talking about all the ways my heart, heart has gone wrong in love. I'm idolatry is a much easier experience to analyze. Um, whereas now I'm talking about what it is I'm trying to put your finger on what it is to appreciate God and love God. And, uh, those moments of quiet or maybe not quiet, but, uh, you know, wherever you are, um, it's harder to pinpoint. And I think that's one of those interesting things where it's harder to describe goodness and a good character, um, than it is to, in a sense, narrate, um, narrate, uh, just a normal or, or sinful character in a novel. In a sense, this is another thing about Lewis, the way he, it's kind of interesting that, you know, the Paralandra, it's one of the only places where you can find like a believable unfallen person, you know, narrated, um, where goodness seems believable. Um, and there's something about that, I think related to talking about, uh, the presence of God or the feeling of appreciative love of God, uh, without, sounding false or showy or something. I don't know if that's cynical, but um, I don't know if that's, yeah, that that's, that's something different. I used to, yeah, I used to be, I used to be far more able to talk about that. It's far harder now. Um, so Alistair, it does seem like that sense of depth that you get reading 
passages like this um, is very significant for understanding his vision more generally. Um, for instance, the difference between nearness of resemblance or likeness and nearest, nearness of approach, these sorts of things that come early on, earlier on in the book. That sense that our love um, falls so far short, even at its highest height, um, and we have this sense of how far God exceeds the measures that our love can hold up to him. And in that sense, there's a, a deep humility um, and that reticence that he brings at this point, I think, is a very healthy one, more generally for our awareness of the solemnity or the the weightiness of the things of God, which I think is often something that we've lost. We can have, as you spoke about earlier, this sort of exuberant love for God, but often it's a a love that's so domesticated, it's similar to our earthly loves for our neighbour, for our wife, for whatever, um, there's less of a sense of it Tacos. as a love that just exceeds everything else and that is has a, a sort of vertiginous depth to it um, that we are just overwhelmed by. It seems like that is probably a good... Uh, place to, um, I suppose, wrap up the conversation, pause it, um, just kind of a, a, yeah, a pause at, at the at the at the fullness of the love of God that cannot be fully articulated, um, despite our best efforts. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I have learned a lot in this discussion. Uh, just going through this book again. Uh, go, I, actually, this might have been the first time I've read through it. I've listened to lectures, but um, this was this was something. Um, if you're listening in and you joined us, either just as a listener or if you read along as well, thanks, thanks for that. We hope this has been a, a fruitful discussion for you guys, uh, and we will be back next week with another episode on something else entirely uh but we hope you'll we hope you'll come back and listen as well uh, for now though uh, if you want to check out mirrororthodoxy.com we'll have any show notes relevant show notes and links to past episodes but for now uh you take care